Over the coming weeks, we're going to be listening to the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached as Jesus teaches his disciples how to be his disciples. But the Sermon on the Mount begins in a very strange way. It has an unexpected context. That's our purpose really for today is to understand the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, before you're switching the channel, before you think to yourself, ah man, what a boring English lesson we're in for today. The context really matters. And in fact, as we learn the context to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 4, we're going to learn about God. We're going to learn about Jesus. We're going to learn about Satan. We're going to learn about Jesus' mission. We're going to learn about us and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What does it mean to be on about what Jesus is on about? All of that and more just from the context. See, the Sermon on the Mount starts in a very strange way. I want to read the last verse and then a couple of verses into chapter 5 and see if you can spot what is so strange about this. This is from Matthew chapter 4 and verse 25. Large crowds followed Jesus from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and beyond the Jordan. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he had sat down, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying... Did you spot what's strange about these verses? I mean, it's the kind of verses that we usually read over without giving a second thought to, aren't they? Oh yes, then this happened, then that happened, then the next thing and there was a crowd. I mean, that's that's Jesus, isn't it? But did you notice that in the very midst of the crowd, as these huge amounts of people from all over the region gather, Jesus withdraws, takes himself up to the mountainside and he begins to teach his disciples. Now, if we understand why, if we understand this, we will begin to understand the setting for the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, without this, I think we're liable to get the Sermon on the Mount wrong and to misunderstand it completely. Now, there's a whole lot in chapter 4 which we're focusing on today. I'm not going to cover all of it. I, I don't think I can in the time that I've given myself. So that means that the cutting room floor tonight, you really ought to tune in. There's a whole bunch of really excellent stuff in Matthew 4 that unfortunately got left behind. Seven o'clock tonight, it's live. I'll be answering your questions as well as sharing with you what I left behind. But as we go through chapter four, I want to point out three things. I want to point out the temptation of Jesus. I want to point out to you the preaching of Jesus. And then I want to point out to you the sermon as he begins. So firstly, let's talk about the temptation. Now, the point of this section from verses 1 to 11 is to show that Jesus is the true Israel, that Jesus is the true Son of God. You see, God gave salvation to his people previously. He did it in Israel in the Old Testament, and they failed spectacularly, miserably, horribly, many, many times. But where they failed, Jesus succeeded. And his success means something very important. I'm telling you the point up front because I want you to understand how much it matters. See, his success at doing what God's son was supposed to do means that he can then be a representative for all of God's people. Jesus' success in the face of temptation doesn't just teach us a nice little model for what we should do when we are tempted. It does. But that's not the point. The point is that in him succeeding, he achieves what we can't. And he achieves it for us. 
Let's have a look together at these verses. Then, chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the desert, by the devil. Right then, okay, we're picking up where we left off last week. As the baptism of Jesus occurs, the sky opens, the Spirit descends like a dove, and God himself speaks audibly into his creation, one of the few times he ever does it, to declare of Jesus that he is both the king who will rule over all for eternity and the suffering servant who is killed for the sin of many. That same spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so, of course, verse 2, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Perhaps an understatement, one of those verses that you kind of go, well, I see what his type of uh, sense of humour was. Of course you're going to be hungry after 40 days and 40 nights of not eating. He would have been starving. However, this isn't just a random thing. This is very specific. Again, we're supposed to see in these verses Israel. We're supposed to see what happened. There's all sorts of times that the number 40 occurs in the Old Testament. Perhaps this one is related to the 40 days that Israel's spies spent in the promised land. They came back from that spying and they said, we can't do it, this is bad, they're giants, we're stuffed. And God said, well, you should have trusted me because you didn't. You are going to wander the desert for 40 years, a year for every day. The spies failed. And Israel in the wilderness was hungry. Now, just to point out that if you don't read the Old Testament, you will struggle to understand the New Testament. Now, you could read these verses, right? He was in the desert 40 days and nights. You could go, oh, yeah, okay, I understand that. But you won't understand why, what this is alluding to, how this all worked together. Now, I get the Old Testament is hard to read. Absolutely. And that's why we have to read hard. For without it, we will not understand the New Testament. Israel, in the Old Testament, was put to the test by God, and they failed. In fact, Israel then put God to the test, when what they should have done was trust. And so God taught them with hunger. Jesus is hungry, and Satan comes, and Satan tempts. Interesting, isn't it, in verse 3, how he's named the tempter. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, by the way, the Bible makes no apology for the fact that Satan is real. Satan has power. Although we can sometimes either make a bit too much or a little bit too little of Satan's power. Really, his power is in the power of words. Satan is a li- Satan is a liar and an accuser. That's his real power. Now we can minimize that and pretend it's not a real power. It is. But we can go too far and give him too much power. From the very beginning, his power has been to lie, to accuse. Right? He accuses us before God and he accuses God before us. You think of that very first lie as Adam, as Satan approaches Eve and says, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? Well, it's just accusing God, right? Accusing God of being somebody who didn't care for them. 
Satan comes and does the same to Jesus. It's almost as if he's saying, since you are the Son of God, right? If, if this truly is you, if this is the power that you have, if you are the Son of God, then do what the Son of God does. Do what Israel did. They were hungry in the wilderness, and so they said to God, feed us! And out of the stones flowed water, out of the air fell bread. Well, go on, if you truly are the Son of God, feed yourself. Satisfy your own needs. If you're in the wilderness, then do as Israel did in the wilderness. But you see, Jesus, he knew better. He didn't come for himself. He didn't come to do miracles that would feed him. He didn't come to provide for his own needs. I mean, he could make food. Of course he could. It won't be too long before he's feeding thousands upon thousands of people. Could Jesus make food for himself? Yes. But that's not why he came. Remember, he came as the suffering servant. I mean, it's a, it's a funny picture, isn't it? Jesus wandering along. Oh, I'm a bit peckish. I'm just going to reach into this rock over here and poof, pull out a burger. You know, like he, he could have. No, I'm having a drink of water. Oh, that's a bit stale. I'm just going to turn it into some beautiful Grange Hermitage and mm, lovely wine. Right? Jesus can do all of these things, but he never did because he wasn't here for himself. No, in fact, Jesus responds to Satan in verse 4. He answered, it is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'm not here to do my own bidding. I'm not here to do yours. I'm here to live by God's word, Jesus says. Now, it's worth noting, all the quotes that Jesus says, all his replies to Satan, are all out of just two chapters. Deuteronomy chapters 6 to 8. You can go find them all in there. And this is the context, again, of that testing, that tempting of Israel in the wilderness. Where Israel failed time and time again, they knew what they were supposed to do, but they didn't do it. Jesus does it perfectly. He knew what Israel should have been. And he was it. So, verse 5, the devil again tries. He takes him to a holy city, had him stand, the holy city, sorry, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, again, if you're the son of God, do what the son of God does. Throw yourself down, for it is written. Satan quotes the Bible. He will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But go on, Jesus, just jump off. 400 odd metre fall into the very middle of all the people. I mean, what better way to announce that you are the son of God than with splendour and majesty and power of this sort Plus, God's promised it. If you are the truly the Son of God, then jump off because God has promised to protect you by His angels. So off you go. Again, note in passing, Satan quotes the Bible. Satan speaks. These are words coming out of some of the Psalms. These are promises of God. It's worth noting that simply quoting the Bible does not make one biblical. In fact, often those are the very sheep's clothing that the wolves will wear. No, what we need to do is work hard at understanding the Scriptures, make sure we apply them properly. 
You see, there's a very big difference between God caring and putting God to the test. There's a big difference between knowing that God has promised that he loves and is for his people. I mean, this psalm, especially of the Messiah, of course God is going to protect his king. I mean, God can't afford to lose him, so, so to speak. Of course he's going to command his angels to protect him. But there's a difference between God caring and even the promises God makes for us in caring for us and putting God to the test. Saying one day, well, the traffic's a bit busy on this road, so God, you've promised to look after me, I'm just going to close my eyes and start walking and your angels had better protect me. Israel did put God to the test. They did what they ought not. You can go and read that in Exodus chapter 17. In fact, a place got renamed Massa and Meribah, which means test. But Jesus told him, verse 7, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Trust him. Don't test him. Trust him. Again, verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He said to Jesus, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. (laughs) I mean, what a ridiculous lie for Satan to come to the one who is the king of the world, the one who already owns it the one who will smash his enemies to pieces and gather those who are his to a heavenly banquet, for Satan to come to him and say, well, do you want it? I, I can give it to you. Well, it's not yours to start with, Satan. But more importantly, the command of God is very simple. Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Man, I tell you what, if Israel failed any of them, this is the command they failed. The first, the greatest, and the one they broke time and time and time and time again. In fact, this is the heart of all temptation, not just for Jesus, but for us. The heart of temptation is to not give to God what is truly and rightfully his. To not give him the worship he deserves. To bow before an idol. Let me just think about Israel for a moment, what they did. You could say that on the very wedding night, when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the commands, the law, the instruction, when when God and his people were being bound together into one by covenant and by promise, Israel was down at the bottom of the mountain fashioning a golden idol and worshipping it. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And of course, God knew what Jesus needed. Verse 11, the devil left him and the angels came and began to serve him. Of course, the angels could care for him. Of course, God knew his needs. It wasn't as if Jesus needed to somehow break God's word for God to care for him. Adam, the very first Adam, the beginning of the Bible, he failed when Satan tempted him. When Satan caused Eve and Adam to question the goodness of God's word, to question the rightness of God's ways, and he failed miserably. 
Israel, God's next child, failed spectacularly. But Jesus, the second Adam, the true Israel, succeeded. See, how is it that the king was going to come into his kingdom? Do you remember the message from last week? We'll see it again in a moment. God's kingdom is at hand. The king is arriving. And how is he going to come into his power? Well, I'll tell you how he won't come into his power. Not by worldly methods. Certainly not by Satan's methods. Not by feeding himself and caring for his own needs. Not by miracles and displays of enormous power and impressing people. Certainly not by worshipping Satan. The king, this king, comes into his kingdom as the suffering servant who will obey God's word right until the very end. The temptation of Jesus shows us very starkly what sort of a king Jesus would be and what the focus of his ministry is. Worship the Lord only and serve only him. And so, as Satan leaves and when he hears that John has been arrested, Jesus finally begins his ministry. And so we come to our second point, the preaching of Jesus. Now look, as I was writing this, I felt the need for a little bit of a a mental break by now. We've covered a lot fairly quickly. Um, uh, And so I'm not making any sort of point with this, but I thought I'd tell you a joke. Uh, you heard, of course, about all the different sports that are in the Bible. I heard this week the very first sport that's mentioned in the Bible. I hadn't heard of this one before. Uh, any guesses what the very first sport mentioned in the Bible is? Well, of course, it was uh, it was baseball, right? Because uh, they they played it in the in the big inning. In the big inning was when they played baseball. Uh, not too long after that, tennis happened as Joseph served in the courts of Pharaoh. Um, but actually, you know what? Adam came before that. Uh, Adam was the first, the first runner. Uh, he was, he came first in the human race. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're done yet. Uh, motorbike racing, racing. Moses burned up the desert in his triumph. Okay, we're done. We're good. We can move on. Excellent. The preaching of Jesus. Now, verses 12 to 17, we're going to spend even less time in. A lot of that cutting room floor tonight. The context of it matters. But if you were going to summarize Jesus' ministry, what one word would you use? If you were going to summarize his ministry. Now I'm sure some people would uh, perhaps say miracles, healings, teaching even. Did you pick the word evangelist? Did you pick that Jesus at the heart of what he did was a preacher of the gospel, of the good news of restoration between man and God. Now again, the context of this, that quote from Isaiah chapters 8 and 9, we're not going to go into in depth, enough to say that in Isaiah 8, God's people are about to be judged and the judgment will fall on the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And in Isaiah chapter 9, a new light appears, hope dawns in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. So Jesus is not just ticking a box as he fulfills prophecy. He is embodying the beginning of hope, light for God's people. And so from then on, verse 17, Jesus began to preach, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
But as we see here, the very nature of God's relationship with people. God is personal. He he isn't a a force, a mysterious being, something else. He is a person. He is relational and he speaks. When God begins the salvation of the world, he speaks. Jesus began to preach. And it's the same message as John the Baptist preached. We saw it last week in John the Baptist as he came preaching of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, right? Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And now Jesus is preaching repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Same gospel, same message, although Jesus is going to embody it in himself. Now again, we looked at it in depth last week. Go back and watch that if you haven't yet. Same gospel, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Two things that go hand in hand. And again, to reiterate, repentance is hard. Because it says to us that we're in the wrong. That we need to stop, we need to go away from what we were doing, we need to turn 180 degrees and start going a new way. Start going God's way, not our own. It's very dangerous, repentance. The concept of it. Because when things seem to be going well, that's when you least want to repent. When it looks like everything is going okay, you're going in the right direction, you're travelling along fine, why would I turn around? And yet the gospel comes to us and says you are not okay. If you are outside of Jesus, you need salvation and that salvation requires you to turn 180 degrees from what you are already doing or else. Because with salvation comes judgment. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God which will brook no resistance and which will crush all of God's enemies. You see, in the gospel, salvation and judgment go hand in hand. They come together, they are not separate. The same message saves and condemns. The same act of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross saves God's people and heaps burning coals upon those who would reject him. I mean, you you want a little picture, a little illustration out of the Bible? Think of Noah. As the judgment of God fell upon the world and the water of the rains flooded and killed God's enemies, those very same waters floated the ark, brought the salvation that Noah needed. See, the message that John the Baptist preached, the message that Jesus preached, the message that we still preach today is that now is the time to get right. Now is the time before the king comes. Sort yourself out. I don't mean by sort yourself out, become a good person, by the way. I mean become God's person. It doesn't matter how good you are. You might be somebody who rejects God completely and lives a great life. Let me illustrate for you. You've probably heard this one before, but it's worth repeating. There was a man once who was a very good sailor, like a really, really good sailor. And the ship that he was a part of, man, he was just the nicest guy on board. 
He worked hard. He would put himself out there for anyone anytime anyone was sick. He'd be looking after them, bringing them their food, taking over their shifts if need be. Right when they pulled into ports, he'd always be the guy. He'd say to the captain, "It's all right. I'll look after the ship. Everyone else go and rest." Right? He he just he was an excellent sailor. He could read the wind and the waves. He knew the boat perfectly. He was just a really, really good guy. The problem, of course, was that it was a pirate ship. They sailed under the flag of the skull and crossbones. Now, does that change your opinion of that man? I hope it does. Piracy is really, really bad. In fact, that he was such a good sailor helps to further the cause of piracy. It'd almost be better if he was bad. If he was really bad at his job, then piracy would go worse But because he was so good, he pushed it. So it doesn't matter how good he was, how kind, how nice, how much he looked after other people. He he was a pirate. He was furthering the cause of piracy. See, it doesn't matter how nice, how good, how moral, how upstanding you are. If you are not flying God's flag, then you are flying Satan's. And kind of strangely and perversely, your goodness furthers Satan's cause. Not God's. Sort it out with the king. I don't mean become good, I mean become God's. Meet the Son of God. Listen to Jesus, the suffering servant, who came and who preached this very unpopular message. It's never been popular to say to somebody, you are in the wrong. I mean, I'm in the wrong, right? Without Jesus, don't get me, I'm not sitting up, it's not me sitting up on a pedestal saying this. God himself says that to all of us. Without Jesus, you are in the wrong. Repent, turn back to God. And so as Jesus goes and preaches, we see that he calls his first disciples in the next few verses. He gathers them to him, he calls them to be fishers of men. Come and join me in my mission to go and find God's people and to gather them home. And he preaches and teaches and as he does so, he does so with great power. For he truly is the son of God. We come down to verse 23. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And of course, no surprise... As Jesus heals the sick, the news about him spread. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon possessed, the epileptics, the paralytics, and he healed them all. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And the people were coming from everywhere. Think, past Lithgow, Bathurst maybe even, south as far as Goulburn, walking to Jesus, carrying the sick, fighting the demon-possessed, all to come and be healed. And this is where we get the sermon. We get the beginning to the Sermon of the Mount, and this is where we need to understand the context. You see, the temptation would have been to do ministry by the world's standards. What a crowd! Man, you want to fill the church! Well, we need to start doing miracles. We need to start feeding the poor. We need to start worshipping Satan and living his way. 
Now, not to say that feeding the poor equals worshipping Satan. Not to say that miracles equals worshipping Satan. They can be and are good things in their own place. But if our view of Jesus' ministry and of our own was that we have to do it the world's way, then we would be worshipping Satan. You see, popularity can be so alluring. All the crowds... Oh, the view count on YouTube and the likes and subscribes. Oh, the money in the plate. The people in the pews. The adoring crowds who worship. Well, who? There was a very real danger for both Jesus and his disciples as he wanted to teach them to be fishers of men that Jesus' battle against Satan in all those temptations would have been for nothing anyway because they ended up succumbing. No, he takes his disciples aside. He sits them. He sits down to teach and he teaches them how to be fishers of men. And he's going to teach them to suffer. He's going to teach them to be self-denying. He's going to teach them to live in such a way that it's like walking along a narrow path through a narrow gate that is hard. When you can see everyone else just over there strolling along the wide path, that seems so easy. He's going to teach his followers that the temptations that he faced will face them and that we have to be in it not for ourselves, not for food or for wealth, or for popularity. No, we need to do it his way. Preaching a gospel that is unpopular, but is essential. Prepare yourselves. The king comes. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you For the Lord Jesus, we thank you once again that he fulfills all these prophecies, not just ticking boxes, but truly and powerfully and wonderfully. We thank you that Jesus is the true Israel and the true Adam and us as he takes our sin upon himself, the perfect one who died in our place. Father, thank you for the context we see to the Sermon on the Mount, for this understanding that we too must be on our guard and wary against the temptation that Satan brings, that the world brings, that our own sin and flesh bring. But rather, Father, as we prepare our hearts to sit again under your teaching from next week, as we listen to the sermon that Jesus preached, would you be at work in us to make us like Jesus, not phased by popularity, but desperate to see the lost repenting and finding life in Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.